When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it, or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's a-d-m-i-n at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. Hi. I'm Matt Lambros, photographer and host of the upcoming After the Final Curtain podcast. If you like what you're about to listen to on the Abandoned America podcast, and I'm sure you will, check out the After the Final Curtain podcast. I've been photographing abandoned theaters for more than a decade, and during that time, I've met many people trying to bring these buildings back to life. Each episode dives into the history of one historic theater and tells the story of the people trying to save them from the wrecking ball. It'll be available on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts very soon. Welcome back to our three-part Asylum Extravaganza, where together with creator of the After the Final Curtain book series and podcast, Matt Lambros, we delve into the strange and tragic backstory of the abandoned state hospitals across the United States. In part one, we examined why the asylums were built. In the second part, we discussed the fall of the state hospitals. And in this episode, we're going to fill you in on the fascinating history of one of America's most infamous asylums, Danvers State Hospital and also chat a bit about what it was like to explore such a massive and haunting place in the years after it closed. I'm your host, Matthew Christopher, and you're listening to Abandoned America. All right, uh, we're back with a history of the, I want to say the first asylum that I actually explored. It was Danvers State Hospital in Danvers, Mass. Uh, it was it opened as the State Lunatic Hospital at Danvers, later became the Danvers Lunatic Asylum, the Danvers State Insane Asylum, and finally Danvers State Hospital. It was built in 1874 at a cost of 1.5 million, which is 22 million when adjusted for inflation today. And uh Took four years to build, opened in 1878, and the first patient was admitted on May 13th of that year. And it was designed in the Gothic architectural style by Boston architect Nathaniel Jeremiah Bradley on an isolated site in rural Massachusetts. And it was a multi-acre, self-contained psychiatric hospital. So what that means is it had its own farm. So they, you know, that's where the patients would actually work there and grow food and uh, had doctor's houses, nurse's house or uh, was the uh, Gray Gables. And then later they had male and female nurses homes. Um, There's repair shops, uh, you know, power plant, homes, cottages, two churches. It was a very, very large complex. And 
Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned all that stuff because I mentioned about them being self-contained before, but you hit on a bunch of them, like power plants and churches and workshops and things like that that I kind of, you know, glossed over. So it's, uh, I mean, that's an amazing amount of buildings. Well, I mean, when you look at it, they were designed so that if there was a storm, snowstorm, we're in the Northeast, the snowstorms, back then, people aren't getting their horse and carriage up this giant hill. The nurses and the doctors lived on site, a lot of them. And if that's why a lot of these buildings also had tunnels. So you had tunnels from the male home, the female home, that led into the Kirkbride building, the main hospital. That's funny. That's another thing that I totally left out of mind is the tunnels, which are like the wannabe signature parts of exploring a hospital is if you have not been in state hospital tunnels, you are, you, it, it, it would be hard, in my opinion, to consider yourself a connoisseur of abandoned buildings. Well, it's funny about the, the tunnels at Danvers. They actually uh, dug up parts of them and dumped concrete down them. So you really couldn't go into the tunnels. The reason they did that was because people would go up in one building on the roof and fuck with security. Sorry for my French and then run down through the tunnels and run up into the other buildings. And this is whack-a-mole stuff, basically. Right. Yeah. And so they figured, hey, wait, we got to cut these guys off. It still happened, but it was just a little harder. Anyway, it was a, uh, a Kirkbride building in which we explained a little earlier that it was a sort of a, if, from, if you looked at it from above, it was a bat wing which was a, a floor plan that allowed for light and cir air circulation to every patient room as part of Dr. Thomas Kirkbride's theory that the environment and exposure to natural light were critical in treating the mentally ill. It's just like, oh, maybe don't put them in a dark, like damp room. Maybe that, that could be causing the problem. Right, I mean, which is funny because now you'd think, duh, but, you know, I mean, at that point, it was like, wow, this is a medical breakthrough. Let's not put these people in the most horrible, depressing environments and hope that that somehow helps their illness. But then when you look at the exterior, and I love architecture, and I think Gothic architecture is beautiful, but I think if I had some, you know, if I had uh, a mental illness being driven or brought up to this Gothic castle, <laughs> might add a little bit to it too. That's interesting though, because the idea of having these buildings as castles, you know, or, or, or these huge buildings, I mean, first of all, you know, we see them as old creepy buildings, but they were new modern buildings when they were built. And I think if you're driving somebody up to this place, the fact that it's so huge and that it's so impressive of a building is in a way meant to inspire confidence in you that you know they uh this is a, a thing that is going to be where they're going to receive modern competent medical care and i don't want to get too far in the sidebar about it but there's a really interesting thing about why we find sort of victorian buildings in particular spooky is because you know they built all these victorian houses in one period they're all starting to fall apart at the same time and because of the materials that they're made with. And then, you know, right around that period, Hollywood, television, things like that are all putting the abandoned, falling apart Victorian haunted house. And that would kind of became the shorthand for a haunted spooky place is that style of architecture. And, you know, you could say the same thing with the asylums. Like you and I have grown up in a period where that Gothic or Victorian architecture is spooky but at the time when it was built you know i don't think they really had any such associations with it it's kind of interesting like how people perceive things that way and if they would have thought that same thing as they came up because they made gorgeous grounds yeah that's that's very true i did not think of it like that and you know thinking about it too the, yeah the houses would have probably looked similar in some aspects at the time anyway back to the hospital the main building, the Kirkbride building, was uh, designed to house 500 patients with 100 more if you use the attic space, which having been in the attic, that would have been pretty bad. Uh, there was no, it, it, you know, there weren't, there weren't rooms. It was just, you know, it looked like every other attic. By the late 1930s and 1940s, over 2,000 patients were being held at the hospital, and it was, overcrowding was very severe. So, 
I had mentioned that this hospital was built on Hawthorne Hill, which mm. was the site of one of the Hawthorns who was involved in the Salem Witch Trials, Nathaniel Hawthorne. And one of a, when we were exploring it, there was a rumor that we heard the Grey Gables, the original nurses, uh, nurses building, was this old Victorian-looking house on the corner of the property. And we were told that the door knocker on the Grey Gables front door was the door knocker that was on the Hawthorne house when it was there. And that, that, that was something that they put on there as like a symbol of, here's this was his property. I'm not sure if that was true or not, or just something that was rumored. But when we were exploring, we spent hours looking for that door. Because at this point, all the doors had been removed from the building and been replaced with either uh, like push bar doors or just boarded over. So we looked in pretty much every building for doors to see if we could find one that looked like it went with that building and had a door knocker on it. Just a little aside. And it was probably stolen by a staff member like years and years and years ago. If it ever existed. If it right. was ever even there. Anyway, a massive budget cuts in the 1960s started the ball rolling to close the hospital. The first wards were closed in 1969. And what I had read is that they, so it went from the A ward on one side of the bat wing and then J on the other side. So A, B, C, D. A was the most severe and J was the most severe because they wanted the most severe, the farthest away from the admin in the center. Yeah, the snake pits as they were known. Exactly. So what I had read is that they closed A and J and then moved in. So by 1985, most of the wards on the wings of the hospital were closed. The uh, admin block, which was the admin building plus the uh, gym and the cafeteria uh, were closed in, in 1989. The gym and the cafeteria were still a little bit in use until uh, 1992 when the hospital itself closed. All the patients had moved by then to the Bonner Medical Building, which was across the uh, campus, and it was named after one of the first superintendents at the hospital, uh, Dr. Clarence Bonner. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of another thing, too, is that as they did give people medications and move them out, the, the population just wasn't as high. And the other thing, too, I think that led to the closure of a lot of these is just they're really expensive buildings to maintain. They weren't up to modern code, things like air conditioning uh, or heating. There were advances in them. So, yeah, if you can move somebody out to a more modern hospital building because you have a eighth of the patients that you originally had, it was probably a lot more economical. Yeah, ex exactly. Now, I, I want to go into one of those patients. Are you familiar at all with Marie Balter? No. So Marie Balter was a patient at Denver State Hospital. She was admitted at the age of 17 in 1947. And she was adopted. And her, she was given up for adoption by an alcoholic mother who couldn't care for her. And her adoptive parents were uh, physically and emotionally abusive to her. She developed anxiety and psychotic depression. And she was, when she was admit, uh, admitted, she was misdiagnosed as having schizophrenia and placed on uh, drugs that exacerbated her condition. She stayed at the hospital for 20 years and she was discharged in 1966. She, she returned to school and earned a master's degree from Harvard University. That's impressive. And, and returned to Danvers State Hospital as an employee. She ended up becoming an administrator at uh, the hospital. And, well, you know, I mean, if you grew up in that place, I guess it makes sense to want to come back, right? Yeah. In some ways. I mean, it's well, the environment you know. She came back to help others, you know, that were in her position. She was the chief hospital spokeswoman by 1988, and uh, she ended up going off to founding the Balter Institute, which was patient-led healthcare of mentally ill. And uh, she was like... Great, she wrote a book called Nobody's Child, and she ended up passing away in 99. And there's a, actually a, a memorial tour at the graveyard at Dammer State. And I think I mentioned earlier, there was, there was a file room down in the basement that you could only spend a couple minutes in because you'd start to, to hallucinate because of all the mold. But next to it, there was another room where they had all the returned checks from the employees from the employee pay, paychecks. 
and they were all mm-hmm. scattered all over the floor. There were some still in the drawers, but uh, you know, we'd go down and we'd look through them and see. Just it was interesting, and I remember finding a couple of her old pay stubs down there. That's really cool, you know, and and that's one of the things that I think, you know, when you talk about going into abandoned buildings and what makes them sort of magical, uh, particularly when you do find out about the history, is, I mean, that pay stub has no financial value. It has probably not even a whole lot of historical value, honestly. I mean, it's, it's just a pay stub. It's not really worth anything. But when you see it and you feel like you're connecting with something that is connected with the larger story of the place i mean that's that's really a a powerful sort of thing yeah exactly and it puts it like kind of a like you can read about uh about the history and read about everyone that was there but to actually like find evidence that it that it existed and it happened is really cool and it's something that i really enjoy about these places but, so I assume you knew who she was at the point when you found it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I found it, and then that started, a like, a search for more of her checks or other people that we knew, names that we knew, like hospital superintendents. And um, her husband, Joe, was one of the workers there. So I know I remember people looking for his, his stuff. But anyway, Denver State closed on June 24th, 1992. And uh, the patients were either transferred to halfway houses or to other facilities. I think Tewksbury was probably one that got a, lot, uh, a number of them. Taunton was still still active at the time, so they probably got some. And the building was uh, was left to the elements. There was a, a movie filmed there that I think every explorer has probably watched that we mentioned called Session Nine. It was directed by Which Brad Anderson. Have- what? Yeah. It's oh, a, I just, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interject, but I mean, you have to see it. Like it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's literally just to watch the aerial views of the asylum. That's the, it's like the only reason to watch it. No way. That was a great movie. I loved it. Yeah. Don't lie. That's not, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not. I thought it had the sound editing was fantastic. The photography was really good. It gave a sense of the building as a character and the story was, in my opinion, the idea, so the the basic story is that there's a uh, asbestos crew that's working to clean out the building and that they're on a very tight timeline to do it because of bidding and maybe the building itself, maybe not. And the stress of that starts to kind of undo them. And yeah, I mean, I know that some people don't like it, but I think that's as good of an idea as you can do with a, a spooky old asylum. It certainly beats a bunch of teenagers whose car broke down or something. That's true. I mean, I do kind of prefer the original story. And if you watch the deleted scenes, you can kind of see that. That, yes, the what? I haven't seen them. Um, th- so they cut a lot of this out, but there were a lot more signs that there was some like someone in the building. And at the end you find oh, out yeah. that it was, there's like an old woman who's been living there and you get the impression that it, she's a former patient who just stayed behind. Well, I definitely think we should not spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but even as it was, I thought Peter Mullen was great in that. I love Peter really Mullen. certain that movie came out in uh i want to say 2001 so Mm -hmm. if they haven't seen it yet you know i think the spoiler window is passed but on the other hand it's a movie that only people that are explorers have other than that i mean you know you mentioned session nine people are like what the heck are you talking about like most people haven't heard of that unless you're like a weird horror fan or you really like the films of brad anderson or the guy from csi what did Brad Anderson? Uh, yeah, uh, David um, Caruso. Caruso. Yeah. What did? What else did Brad Anderson do? Uh, he did The Machinist. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was a good movie. Yeah, there's a couple others. Like um, Nineteen Pound uh, Christian Bale in it. Yeah, he went from Batman uh, Begins to that. Those we need <laughs> a can of tuna and an apple a day for yep. that. But uh, anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to derail your uh, your hmm. session nine. No worries. I, I actually think that was a legit good movie. I enjoyed it. So I will say the uh, the graffiti in the cafeteria or the, the auditorium at uh, is my little session nine trivia. The graffiti at 
Brad Anderson hired local local taggers to come up and create that. None of that was in the hospital before he got there. I'll put a link to one of the images of the graffiti in the show notes so that people can see what I'm talking about. And there were a couple, another thing to talk about, like signs that things happened. Uh, Brad Anderson had signed his name in one of the tunnels with the rest of the crew. And he wrote, we did as best as we could. And then the... I don't know if you remember the scene where they're running through a tunnel and there's all the Tyvek suits and the arms. Mm -hmm. That was still there when- Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I think I have a couple photos of that somewhere. Anyway, Danvers State, I first explored it in, well, I first went up in, I think it was 2003. There was a little restaurant down off of the, right off of it. And we parked in the restaurant parking lot and my friend and I ran up the hill. There was a a stairs from the street that you could just go up and it came up into a gazebo. And we just walked around and we left my girlfriend in the car and we couldn't get in. We were trying to get in and we we had no idea what we were doing because this is right when I started exploring. No clue at all. And we decided we were gonna go back down. We didn't realize until later how we were pretty much 20 feet from the security trailer. And if they just happened to look outside, they would have seen us and we'd have gotten caught. But we decided that we were going to scare the hell out of my girlfriend. And so we ran down to my car and banged on the doors as hard as we could. And we're like, let us in, let us in, let us in. They're after us. Security saw us. We got to go. We got to go. And then tore out of the parking lot, laughing hysterically as she freaked out, thinking that someone was coming. And, you know, but. He broke up. No, I think I dated her for about a year after that. Oh, okay. That's uh, well, you know, when you're young, you have. We're still, we're still friends. We're still friends. <laughs> so she, she, you know, she forgave me pretty quick. Anyway, I, uh, I could sit here and tell Danvers stories for another hour and a half, but I'm not going to do that. We can save our asylum stories for another episode. So no, but I mean, I think that's uh, act- actually that's really interesting. And since we're on Danvers, I mean, what was your experience with the security there? Because you told me a little bit about that, and I think that's a great story. <laughs> I had a lot of experiences with security. When I started exploring, especially with Danvers, I would go at night. For we'd go at night because that's what you did at Danvers. You went at night, and. Uh, some of the people, and I uh, liked to, you know, shine flashlights at security guards and, you know, just make noise so that they knew we were there. And one night we were up, I believe it was, uh, it was Christmas Eve. And one of the people we can't went with brought one of these giant, like super powered flashlights that, you know, they last about 10 minutes, but they will brighten up it makes it look like it's daytime, basically. Um, mm-hmm. a million, million, million candle power flashlights is what they were called. And they're huge. And it looked like a cannon. And, yeah. oh, you know, he shined it down at security a few times. And then one time he shined it down and we heard a, a gunshot. The security guard whipped around and shot into the air. So we ran out of there as fast as we could, freaking out. that We got shot at Danvers. Like we, the, at this point we'd been going to, like I'd been going to Danvers for about a year and it's always been like a super chill place and a ton of fun. And, you know, it explored every inch of the building looking, just, just looking for things, seeing what we could find. And then we were getting shot at. So we ran into the connector between the admin and uh, the gym. And we peeked our heads out a window and bang, another gunshot. And the plaster on the wall behind us crumbled because that's where the, the gun, the bullet had hit. That's so, insane. Yeah, so we were, we were freaking out. We hid for a bit. And um, I guess the security guard called the police. Police came up and we started yelling down from the cafeteria roof. Hey, that guy has a gun and he shot at us. And the, the police officers yelled back, come down and talk about it. And we were like, no. No, we're going to stay up here. And the police officer explained that the security guard told him that we had a gun and said that we shot a deer in the front yard. And that's why there was a dead deer now in the front. And we told him no. And we had watched the security guard hide his gun. So we told him where he hid it. And the cop went and looked, found the gun. 
and then said, okay, well now still come down because it's fine that he has a gun. And so we said, no, and we left. And that was one of the last times I went to Danvers at night because I was like, yeah, well, that's pretty. Yeah, I'm not about to get shot at (laughs) again. Well, you know, and, and the thing about that is that, first of all, like, if you're, you know, not familiar with how laws work, you're really not, uh, as far as I know, legally allowed to just randomly shoot at people, you know. But the problem is that if you're in a building that you're not supposed to be in, you're presumed guilty for whatever happened. And probably the security guards have the police out there fairly regularly. They probably know them on a first name basis. And so who are they going to believe them or you? The other thing too, is just that one of the things that you touched on is, especially when you're younger and you go into these places, and I will say, and I can honestly say this, I was never in this sort of the crowd of people that did this, but I know a lot of people messed with security guards for sport. Like they would go up and knock on the doors of their trailer, order them pizzas or, you know, use firecrackers and throw them at their cars and things like that. So I think these people probably build up a really healthy or unhealthy, I guess is a better term, resentment for people that were in the buildings because their whole job was having them screw with their heads. Oh yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to say that I never screwed with security. I never did anything that I that would have uh, would have hurt them ever. Um, How old were you when you first started going there? Uh, I think I was twenty. Okay. Um, but I never, yeah, never did a a thing that would have ever caused anyone bodily harm. It was all like you know taunting or flashlights, and uh, I think we threw some frozen bandages on the ground in front of them. We made dummies out of clothes that we had found in the building, and like positioned them on the roofs so that when the security guards would drive by, they would see that. But there was like a whole contingent of people that, if I recall correctly, I mean, they were like the uh, throwing furniture off the roof of Danvers people. Um, in fact, I think there was, a, wasn't there like a group that did a song about throwing furniture off the roof of Danvers? Yeah, a lot of that, the furniture throwing off the roof and stuff was before, way before my time. So Danvers, when it was, it was, you know, wide open, there was a group of people and a lot of it was, uh, some of them were like local kids would go through and smashed all the toilets, smashed all the porcelain, smashed all the windows, threw everything off, furniture off the, win- out the windows, off the doors. And then that brought DCAM, which was the Department of Capital Asset Management of Massachusetts to put boards on all the windows. So that's why you have red boards on a lot of the pictures, they boarded up every window you could. Uh, and that was at all of their properties that they owned across or managed across the state. So Danvers, Metropolitan, Northampton, they all got this. Yeah, that's a uh, actually a fairly distinctive thing about the Massachusetts asylums. When you see pictures is if they have the, the red boards on the windows that kind of blend in with the bricks a little bit. Exactly. You, probably know that's a, a Massachusetts one. Yeah, so I, I didn't start uh, exploring or going to Danvers until like years after that had happened. So I think the 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 most, not dangerous, but the, the biggest thing we ever did was we took a lot of the furniture on the main floor and blocked the road with it and like created a maze for their car. <laughs> and that, I'm sure they appreciated that. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did, and I hopefully they don't listen to this podcast and find out <laughs> names of people who did that. Well, the statute of limitations is up. I mean, how many years ago is that? Oh, God, yeah, almost 20. Yeah, so, and I can say, like like I said, honestly, I can say I was never in the um, uh, the messing with security group. I was, I was always a little bit more, like, I didn't know explorers quite as much, and I kind of did things a little more on my own, or, like, with Byberry, I would bring some of my friends, but... The one experience that I had that you know, kind of reminds me a little bit of the one with the gunshots was, and again, I mean, bear in mind that Byberry is the first place that I went to that was really a large abandoned campus. And I brought a couple of my friends with me, two friends that I'm re- really still close with this day. And we were walking around on the grounds because I didn't know it. Honestly, I didn't even really know a whole heck of a lot about security. 
But, you know, you go to a place a couple of times and you get cocky about stuff and you think, oh, well, it's no big deal. I'll just walk around on the grounds. What's the worst that could happen? And so at the one point, we're going around the corner of a building and we heard a car engine and one of their pickup trucks, the security's pickup trucks, flew around the corner. And had we not hopped out of the way, it would have hit us. And I think deliberately so, really do. I think they were kind of trying. And we got out of the way and they came out and they were yelling at us and they told us to come over to the, uh, you know, their security trailer. And they were like super mad. And, and it's funny because, you know, at this point, like I didn't realize that there were people that just taunted them all day, you know, and that harassed them all day. I was sort of like, why are you guys so angry? You know, the woman who was there was yelling at me and my friends. And I, I, I want to say like, I don't know, maybe we were like 22, 23 at this time. So again, probably about 20 years ago. And she was like, well, what's your parents' number? We're going to call your parents. And I was like, I'm 22. I don't care if you call my parents. <laughs> you know, Give them a call. It doesn't matter to me. And they did eventually let us go. But I think earlier I had talked about, you know, the group of teenagers that hung out there and had their little like, we're going to drink a beer or smoke a joint and you know, harass the security, like that was their headquarters right there. And they probably did the same thing where they ran down into the tunnels and popped up in another building. But, you know, I didn't get that. I didn't get that that was like a whole thing because, you know, after I went with that person originally and then found out that she was like 14 or 15 years old and was like, oh my God, this is bad. I went back with my friends after that. So, you know, it's funny that you say, the, 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 the Byberry is the one that you went to because I went to Danvers, like I said, for years and saw a lot of this, like messing with security stuff at night. And I went to Byberry, uh, I think like three or four times, both at the like two different trips down to Philadelphia. And what I saw at night at Byberry and the amount of people and the amount of you know, fucking with security and dwarfed everything that I saw at Danvers in yeah. just those two nights. Like it was, you know, there were 40 or 50 people there. There were, we were on one roof and someone shot fireworks at us. And then when we went to the other roof, there was, it was like a fireworks war. People were shooting fireworks at each other and then at security. Like two buildings were on fire. It was insane. It was, which is a terrible choice of words again, but it, it was very, it was ridiculous. And it's funny that you're, the, you know, that's the, that was the first place that you, uh, you really explored. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, that's what you kind of hear about certain places is that it's like a bit of a war zone at, after nightfall for the people that are security. And it's like when you're younger, you think, oh, those, you know, stupid security guards. And then you get older and you're like, oh, they just want to go through a shift and not have to deal with bullshit, you know? And and I can get that. I mean, I, I understand that. I understand that uh, having to chase people around these buildings gets frustrating after a while. Um, I mean, even if they are abandoned, even if you can't really take care of them, like you are given, uh, the whole point of frustration is being given a task which you cannot complete. And the task is keep people out and you can't do it. So I, I do get that. I, I do have I do have sympathy for that. Well, I just wanted to uh, wrap up Danvers before we continue our discussion on security guards and uh, their mental welfare after dealing with explorers for years. Uh, so uh, Danvers State, in, de in December of 2005, uh, the property was sold to Avalon Bay Development. I've read that the second highest bidder, and I'm not sure how true this is, but the second highest bidder intended on restoring and saving the entire Kirkbride building. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but demolition of most of the buildings began in January of 2006. Um, They're gonna build 500 apartments and condos on the, on the site. And by June 2006, all of the Denver State buildings that they were gonna demolish had been torn down all the buildings on the lower grounds and all the buildings on the hill, except for the admin section of the Kirkbride and one ward on each side. So D ward and so and G ward uh, were saved. They lowered some of the bricks down. So they took about uh, like 
the built the wards were too tall, so they they took some bricks off the top, made them a little smaller. They were supposed to save both sides, but what I had read is they actually only saved the facades, the front of the uh, the Kirkbride, and the the rear walls were demolished and they built new ones. I don't know why, probably some structural thing. So really, only the facades of of the admin and the two wards were saved, and the property went for sale or for rental in 2007. And the following year, I went back after it had opened and I walked into the admin building and I walked up to the top floor and I climbed up a ladder and I used my pocket knife to pry open a hatch and I walked into the attic and I climbed up into the tower, which is where we used to hang out when we would explore the building. Uh, and it was a really weird scene. It was such a view sitting up in this tower and being able to look at the wards. And, you know, we'd gone up there at sunrise and sunset and just, it was a beautiful, it's hard to describe, but it was like beautiful architecture with all the turrets and, and all the, you know, the, uh, uh, the building. And then to go up there and just see it, like, it was like, like looking at a wounded friend. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was upsetting. So I, uh, you know, I took a couple photos and I, I left and I haven't gone back up the hill again. Was it, uh, was the clock tower itself? I mean, cause that's a very distinctive looking clock tower too. Well, was I, the clock tower the part that you were in pretty much yeah. the same? No. Well, so that's the one thing, uh, I forget when it was, and I don't have it in my notes, but the, uh, the clock tower was actually when we went, it was, it was different when we were there because they had taken the clock off of it. And I think it was like in the, the 50s or 60s, they had removed that por portion and shortened it. And when Avalon Bay came in, they restored it to its original appearance. Mm -hmm. So it was a little taller than it was. The stairs that led up to the tower weren't there. I had to climb up a ladder, but there were still some like tags from when we were there. Oh, wow. Remnants of stuff like that. So I have two questions for you on this. One is we never touched on the uh, prefrontal lobotomy thing. Mm, we, yes, that's right. The prefrontal lobotomy. So the first lobotomy was performed at Denver State, uh, I want to say in the 1940s. I've read a lot of references that it was the, or a lot of things that said that the Denver State, Hosp Denver State Hospital was where the prefrontal lobotomy was perfected. However, I've never, I've only been able to find people saying that it was i haven't found any actual evidence like no medical journals no references in in anything like in like articles news articles the credible news articles saying that it is right just like books on denver state saying denver state was the the home of this this is where it happened and i kind of think the source of it if i'm not and i could be completely wrong is that it's session nine, because that's something they bring up in session nine. Well, and that's interesting. <laughs> Actually, not to bounce off to a totally different thing, but you know, I've talked about this before, where the history of places, people present it as solid, mm -hmm. and it's more fluid. I, I think a lot of people realize. You know, you read something in a particular site, and it could be that your historian has misunderstood something. It could yeah. be that. Your historian made it up because, you know, there are people out there that just make stuff up to sell stuff. Uh, it could be that they looked at a source that was incorrect. So when you're talking about the lobotomy thing, I think it's, you know, one of the things that is really important for people that are listening to this and looking at the history of older buildings is to understand that you might think that it's on a particular day and it might say everywhere that it's on this particular day, but might actually be a week earlier. Or, you know, they might say that the uh, lobotomy was developed at this place. Let's say they were like the transorbital lobotomy and they meant the prefrontal lobotomy. You know, there are things like that where you see that happen all the time where somebody quotes somebody else and then a third person quotes them and all of a sudden it's fact but you don't really know. So, I mean, at this point, even though you've read something that said that that was the way that it worked. Yeah. Like, so I, I, um, and this is probably coming from 
writing on After the Final Curtain for years. I I do my best to research these theaters. Um, I use old newspaper archives. I use old media archives to try to find out the history and things that happened when they were constructed. And sometimes, and over the years, I've gotten things wrong. As that has happened, I get more and more strict about what I put into my posts because if I can't source something, I don't put it in there. And you know, researching for Danvers, and I'd always going there. I'd also I'd heard about the the thing with the prefrontal lobotomy being perfected, and it, what I'd heard it was that it was perfected in the Bonner Building. And so when I was putting together this little write up, I wanted to double check and see if I could find an accurate source, like like a, a first source, like here's an article about blah blah, blah doctor that he did has something new called the prefrontal lobotomy. But I couldn't find it. It doesn't mean it's not out there. It doesn't mean that it's, it wasn't perfected there. It just means that it wasn't up to snuff for me. So right. that's why I'll say it's said to be perfected there. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I mean, I think that's an important thing is that you have that sort of healthy skepticism, particularly when people aren't using firsthand sources, but even when they are, because, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about the, uh, the Catskill game farm and like our next episode or the one after it. And in the Catskill game farm, they have, you know, there's the date that's listed in the papers. There's the date that the interview with the, uh, the guy who founded it, like a direct interview with them or where he says, and it's a significantly different date. And then my friend, the uh, the owner of it after it closed, Kathy, she found some, I don't know, I, I think it was 60th anniversary or something like that. But the point is, is, is it was a, an anniversary thing for it that was a third date. So it's like the people who had the park and that were putting things out about it didn't even seem to really know the date that, quote unquote, it opened. So anyway, I mean, the point isn't that, you know, I think both you and I work really, really hard to try and figure out what the accurate information is. But it's always really good for people who are listening to things like this to understand that, you know, the further back things get in time and the more obscure they get by legend, the harder it is to suss out sometimes unless you find those firsthand documents. But yeah, so that's supposedly one of the things that goes with Danvers, yeah? Yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was, because we had talked about this privately, you know, beforehand, but I mean, I'm always super, super, super jealous that you got to go to Danvers because that is kind of a legendary place, you know, in terms of explorers and hospitals and things like that. But you don't have a whole lot of pictures. You said you only have like two or three pictures, yeah? Oh, no, I mean, so... Well, I mean, good ones. <laughs> good ones, yes. I was going to say, I have... I mean, these are old pictures, so it's probably like half a gigabyte worth of them, but it's hundreds of pictures. I have hundreds of pictures. I have some video. None of the video is, you know, it's... You, you can barely see it because it was all taken at night. And the but, photos were, you know, I started shooting Danvers with a camcorder and using the stills from the camcorder. And then I graduated to using a point and shoot that my uh, mom got me for my high school graduation. That was 2.2 megapixels. And, and then uh, it was a PowerShot Pro 1, which was a, like a Canon sort of SLR, but not quite. It was like a step in between a point and shoot and an SLR. So the lens I didn't come. I think that might have been the one I started with. That's funny. Uh, and then Canon 20D was the last one I had when I was up there. And so I have a couple shots from the 20D that are decent. For the most part, though, I it was when I was still in school. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I kept trying to take artsy shots. And so I'd like get down on the ground and shoot up and it was like weird angles. And if I shot in the center of like a, a center hallway shot, it was by sheer luck. Uh, right. And some of the shot, some of the best shots I got from the place were uh, in that, in those couple months in uh, 2006 when it was being torn down because there was a, a bit in the end of 2005 when we stopped going like, if you can imagine, there was a, a a couple months where my friends and I would call each other and say, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? 
let's go to Danvers. No, we've, we, well, no. How about NoHo? No, we've gone to both of those too much in the past couple couple weeks. Let's let's go to a different hospital. And now I'm like, oh, we should, should have gone back to the Danvers. Um, anyway, when it was being torn down, we went every weekend and like like for hours and they were pulling the boards off the room off the windows uh they were you know abating the place and so we got to i got to shoot a lot of of the building in with uh, natural light which was very nice to actually see what you were shooting because for the longest time it was just this like you know there were all the red boards on the windows so you couldn't really see anything unless you had uh my friend daryl with you who could boot the boards off with one kick uh so that was that was nice but you can't really do that during the day and not get uh caught what was um so what would you say the interior was like when you went through it i mean how would you how would you describe it because like for me you know byberry was as you know incredibly trashed and I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years and I've been through trash buildings and Byberry was, especially the newer buildings were just, I mean, they had spray paint everywhere. People had busted the walls and the windows and things like that. But you had said that, you know, it was a lot more decayed and, and kind of more dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were certain wards uh, like uh, Sea Ward, for example, where the, the floor, the first floor of Sea Ward was the floor had started to buckle. So it was all wavy. And my uh, my friend Molly and I one day decided that we were going to walk across Seaward because we were ridiculous and, you know, young and didn't think that we would die. <laughs> and so we we walked across it and survived. But it was, you know, there were pockets of uh, graffiti here and there. There was the fake graffiti in the auditorium that I told you about. But there were some other little things here and there. I know that... Uh, I pissed off some people at one point and got a bunch of graffiti about me in some of the buildings, which I have some. Oh, see, I didn't know about that. Oh, yeah, I have photos of me posing with it because I found it hysterical. Matt Lambros is a rat? Uh, no, they used my uh, my online name, which was Starman. So, and it was all about raping me, which, you know, is a little uh, terrible, but it is what it is. Well, I'm glad that never came to pass. I am too. I am too. Uh, <laughs> you know, the comparing it to Byberry, I would say it's more like the uh, what were those buildings? The the old older buildings. The I want to say, you know, what I'm talking about at Byberry. The the smaller. Yeah. What was it called? What are those called? Oh, I don't even know anymore. I mean, honestly, I th that's. I was never one of the people that uh, was very good at being like, this building is C7, you know, or whatever. I like, wanted to say they're the C buildings. I thought so, too. That was That's what, what I, I was, was going to say. But it reminded me more of those, you know, less less fire damage. But, you know, like standard hospital, you know, some salmon-colored wards, some like a bright, almost muted, like aqua green you know, peely paint, but not that much graffiti, only certain areas like admin had some and some of the wards off of that had, had and it was, none of it was like professional. It was all like just weird stick figures and like demon heads. Boobs and swastikas. I don't remember any swastikas to be honest, but I'm sure there were some. Yeah, that's the uh, the the standard go-to is pentagrams and uh, penises. Definitely, definitely pentagrams. There were definitely pentagrams. There was a thing with Byberry that people talked about. They had they had a lot of goofy, goofy rumors about that place. That there were like Satanists that would chase you through the tunnels and sacrifice you, or like pressure plates on the floor that if you stepped on the pressure plate the door was going to close behind you and you'd be locked in forever like it was like indiana jones in the temple of doom or something you know boulder rolls down one of the hallways after you i realize that's raiders of the lost ark but you get my point and you know it's just funny because like you, you you know you have these groups of kids that are going in and posting about this stuff online and just the uh the stuff that they come up with is is pretty ridiculous 
Um, and, and usually, you know, it was the, the teenagers themselves that were spray painting the swastikas on things, or I mean, not the, uh, the pentagrams. Um, it's funny you should say that about Flyberry, though, because I went there with a, a guy whose name is uh, Robbie Nobby, and he told us a story, and I could be completely misremembering this, but that there was someone who was an explorer who was looking at the blueprints of Byberry, and they saw that there was a space in the walls in most of the buildings, and they convinced him that those were the secret doctor tunnels that were super cool, and he should go try to find the entrance. And he took us around in a few rooms, and, and in the rooms, someone had smashed into the walls. And he was like, here, here's where, here's where he did this. He, he tried to get into these tunnels, not realizing that it was the spot for the pipes to go through the wall. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. So I'll tell you what, let's take a break just for a minute. When we come back, we'll wrap up here, and okay. we'll go from there. Okay. All right, and we're back. So I think that about wraps it up for our first asylum episode first of what of what will be i'm sure many and we you know we touched a little bit on danvers state and there's a, a great website out there it's by a man named john gray it's uh, danversstatehospital.org and if you want to find out more about the history of the asylum and see some uh, photographs of it and uh as always my work can be found at afterthefrontalcurtain.net after the frontal curtain on instagram after Funnel Curtain on Facebook, and just to change things up, I'm Matt Lambros on Twitter. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, so I guess for me, I well, first of all, I think another good, if we're giving people resources, like uh, Asylum Projects is one of the ones that I've always really enjoyed. Uh, they have a lot of information and historical photos about asylums. I think they do a, a really excellent job with that. And if you're looking for me, I'm abandoned America across pretty much everything except for television because the show stole my name. So uh, look me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you know, not Snapchat because I'm old. Uh, I Oh, I have a TikTok. There's that final curtain TikTok. You have an after the final. What do you do in the after, after the final curtain TikTok? Do you like plank and abandoned theaters? No, I just post <laughs> videos from theaters and then everyone comments on it about how it looks like that level from Call of Duty. So then I, <laughs> I gave up. That's it. Like that's my biggest pet peeve with explore with photograph photo, posting photos of theaters when someone comments and goes, "That looks like Kino from uh, Call of Duty." It's like, yeah, thanks. I haven't heard I that. Know, after I didn't know Call of Duty had a theater level. Yeah, there's, or the zombie uh, Nazi zombie level. One of them was theaters. Was a theater. Yeah, I get I get Left for Dead or Fallout. Those are the ones. Which hey, yeah. Fallout, man. That's I, I, take I, I like them both. Yeah, but yeah. So I think that that's a wrap. Like like you said, we talked about Danvers. We kind of went through the history of it, and when we revisit uh, the history of asylums, which I'm sure we will do at some point, we've got a lot more great stories on that for you. But I think for now, for our first season, we're gonna skip off to something else. It might be. I think the next one might be the the Catskills, and uh, and and. Uh, friend of mine who bought an abandoned zoo so we'll go from there all right great talking with you Matt. thanks so much yeah thank you have a great night yeah enjoy your day everyone take care mm-hmm.